Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're all still doing well during this pandemic. In this episode of America Adapts, I'm hosting Dr. Moore McDonald of the Walton Family Foundation. Moore is the Acting Environment Program Director, and we have a fantastic conversation about the conservation work they are doing at Walton and how they are approaching adaptation. We also talk about the role of foundations in the overall adaptation space. This was a fun and very enlightening conversation for me. I hope you enjoy it. Upcoming episodes. Up next is former Democratic presidential candidate and investors Tom Steyer. That was a fantastic conversation. We dug in on him running on a climate platform, and I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you. I was also on the phone ready to record with former U.S. Senator Russ Feingold, but we had a technical issue. Yes, that does happen on occasion. We're rescheduling that, and we'll talk about the International Biodiversity Initiative he's been involved in. Okay, I want to mention the work I'm doing with Simpatico Studios. I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation channel on Simpatico TV. Right now, we're recording pilots. I've recently recorded my 50th pilot episode. I've been talking with some amazing climate professionals from around the world. So keep in mind, this is streaming TV. This isn't a podcast. This isn't audio. It's actual TV. If you're a professional in this space, maybe we can have a conversation about the important work you're doing. It's actually a relatively simple process to participate. Videos from all episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own website or social media. If you are looking for opportunities for remote working, Simpatico is definitely something you should look into. And we're also encouraging you to come check things out, come watch a live show, and join the community room. The software is behind a firewall, and it's just browser-based, so it's just something you look into your browser. So reach out to me or go to simpatico.com, and that's with a C, C C-I-M-P-A-T-I-C-O.com, and put your information in, and you'll get directions on getting into a show. Yes, it's free. We want to just let you check things out and see what Simpatico is all about. Okay, let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Moore McDonald of the Walton Family Foundation. Hey, Adapters, I have a very exciting episode for you. Today, I'm hosting Maura McDonald, Interim Environment Program Director at the Walton Foundation. Hi, Maura. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So first things first, we have to acknowledge that we're all living through a pandemic. So what what does that mean for you working at the Walton Foundation? What, what's happening with you? So we shut down. I think our last day in the office was Friday, March 13th. We had not been traveling for a couple of weeks before that already. We shut down all four of our offices and have been uh, working from home. We've made a pretty seamless transition. You know, we uh, Zoom all the time. I led a meeting of 55 people this morning on Zoom to approve our Friday grants. And, you know, it's it's going okay. I think, you know, it's like for everyone, it's people feel a little isolated. People wish we could connect in different ways. But I think we're still getting our work done and and trying to help our grantees and move our issues forward. As an environment director, there is a bit of travel and you just have to cut that out completely. And I guess visiting locations for the time being. We're all operating in the Zoom world. How I want to approach this, I want, we're going to learn about the environment program at the Walton Foundation, and we're going to dig into a, a couple of the themes, but just more broadly, what is the environment program there at Walton? So we focus on improving oceans, and we focus on ocean and river conservation, and we specifically work on the Mississippi River, where we work with farmers and agriculture to improve water quality. We work in the Colorado Basin where we work on water scarcity 
And then we work in key fisheries around the world where we're trying to make sure that there's enough fish for people to eat and at the same time uh, leave enough fish in the ocean to keep the food web healthy. We try to do our work by partnering with communities. And we have a catchphrase where we say that we think that often those who are closest to the problem have the best solutions. So we try to work closely with all kinds of partners, but including communities to advance solutions that last. So you talked a little bit about what you were doing, but let's say in normal times for an environment program director at a foundation, what's a typical workday? What are you really doing there? So I spend a lot of my time working with grantees. We work with them individually and in groups. We try to help them align with our issues, figure out the smartest way to pursue them, connect them to other partners, other potential funders, but also other people they can partner with doing their work. And then, uh, you know, try to do sort of whatever we can to help them. I, I always think one of the best things about this job for me has been that we've picked really big, hard problems and the Family, the board has basically said, like, you know, whatever tools you guys need in the toolbox, they're legal for private foundations. You can go after it. If you need a communications campaign to advance your issue, go ahead. If you need to build a grassroots campaign, if you need to some science to work better with farmers, if you need a app to, you know, record water quality, you know, go ahead. So we, we try to, you know, bring the full range of tools in the toolbox to helping our grantees advance the issues on the ground. You know, I'll be honest here, especially early in my career, when asked what my dream job was, it was to be the environment program director at a major foundation. And here I am talking to you. It's no longer my dream job, but, it, you know, I think I didn't appreciate maybe more the mundane things that you have to do. But it was just like, oh, I'm going to go on location and I'm helping funding oh, and I'm just going to yeah. write checks. And it's a bit more complicated than that. Can I just tell you a little story? Sure. Yes. I started this job. My kids were three and five. And I think the first time they came to work with me, they were like five and seven or something. And um, they were so disappointed. <laughs> they were like, Mom, I thought you were really helping the river. All you do all day is go to meetings and send emails. <laughs> How are you helping the river? So, yeah, I mean, it's an office job. I do get to go to a lot of cool places and see neat things. But like mainly my job is to help people get really good work done on the ground. But I do that from my office in D.C. Okay, so let's drill down in some of the environment programs. And obviously, this is a climate adaptation podcast, and we're going to talk a bit about that and just uh, how Walton approaches that. But you have a, a coastal program, and it's related to the, the oil spill money that's come through. Do you want to give some kind of general information on that, and maybe we can dig down into what, what's going on there? Sure. I'll just set it up for you, if you don't mind. We we work on the Mississippi from its origin in Minnesota all the way to where it meanders down and reaches the Gulf. And the the work in coastal Louisiana is really focused on this huge problem they have of land loss. You know, they since the 1920s, they've been losing land at the current. They're currently losing land at about the rate of a football field every hundred minutes. It has to do with how we have managed the Mississippi River. We've done a great job managing it for transporting grain and keeping it from flooding out communities in Louisiana. But we have constrained it so that it no longer does what it does best 
meanders towards the Gulf and as it gets wider and moves more slowly, dropping its sediment and bringing fresh water to those coastal wetlands, building the wetlands over time. And so and in response to that, you know, we're, we're losing land. And so we have sought to work with a whole bunch of people down there, broad coalition of environmentalists and businesses, industry who depend on the Delta as well, to try to change the way we manage the river to kind of restart the Delta building machine, really, to make it go back to in a controlled way allow it to reconnect with the floodplain and the wetlands and continue to deposit freshwater and sediment and to both slow and stop the loss of land and actually start to rebuild some some of the wetlands down there. We've been doing this for a long time, about 11 or 12 years, I think, a little longer even, uh, shortly after Katrina. And we just see it as like really critical issue for that part of the world. Um, and for New Orleans and the coastal bayou communities, but also for people around the world living in deltas and addressing sea level rise. Okay, so you've been doing that for a while, and I guess maybe even stepping back a bit, how, how long have you worked at Walton? I've been there since uh, the end of '08. Okay, so that's lifetime in some <laughs> in an environmental I know, job. I know. I, I'm old. <laughs> well, that wasn't the implication. It was, you know, conservation groups. You spend three years somewhere and then you're off somewhere else. Or maybe that's my experience. So you have a long history there. And Walton, it, I, I think it's 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 mainly a, a family board, though, right? Yes, it's a family board. It's a family driven foundation, you know, and they've been working in the environment. They started work exploring environmental issues back in, in 2002 or 2003. They really formed the program in about 06, but it took them a little while to establish the program areas and to start hiring people. So I think I was like the fourth or fifth hire in the program, third or fourth hire in the program. And they have been, you know, they, the family established the priority areas and we've been working on these things ever since. That's interesting. And I, I'm assuming just there's obviously a love for the Mississippi and what's going on in Louisiana. And so much is going on there. And so many, I guess, partners and organizations are working in the area. It must be a bit of a challenge for you. You've been doing it long enough, but I guess what I'm getting at, too, is like how you decide to invest your money. Do you sort of sort of set some parameters and the groups kind of come to you saying that they can fill this need? Or did you have to do a lot of homework to kind of understand how you're going to really help the region? We do what we call strategic philanthropy. So we really develop, we're in strategic planning now. So we spend that time developing a strategy, conferring with experts, kind of building out what philanthropists like to call a theory of change. And then once you kind of secure that, you know, how are we going to work for the next five years? To what end are we going to work? What's our specific goal? Then you go out and you try to find your partners. We have mostly worked with existing partners, but over the time that I've been at the foundation, there's a lot of groups who we have thought, well, you know, we could do our work better if they had more capacity, if they were stronger, if they were bigger. And so some of those groups we have helped build out over time to be able to be stronger partners and, and have more capacity to work on these issues. So Louisiana and then this loss of land. And I just wonder as a foundation and when you're communicating with grants. And so this whole notion of sea level rise, that's just becoming a much bigger issue in the coastal area. And organizations are having to, 
I guess, figure out what the best science is that they're going to use. And, you know, sometimes it's, mm-hmm. it can be very controversial. And then even when it comes down to an issue of uh, it's you communicating to them saying, well, you know, are you factoring in three foot sea level rise, seven foot? Because mm-hmm. that could just radically alter the nature of the grant you're giving them and the work they're doing. So are you having even down to that level of are you really thinking about sea level rise in, in a serious way? So in Louisiana, what we have been, most of our work is around trying to expedite and implement, but implement really much, much faster, the coastal master plan, which has really highly developed. And we've sort of dug into this and peer reviewed it and spent a lot of time with it set of like really robust models that both look at the how the river operates, right, and what the river can do in terms of restoration, but also really has looks in depth at sea level rise. And so we look, they have, when they uh, do this modeling, they run all of the projects that are part of the master plan against three different scenarios for sea level rise, like the best case, worst case, and a medium case. And you do not survive continuing to be part of a project in the master plan unless you stand up and are durable against the worst level of the worst scenario for sea level rise. So obviously we take that super seriously and we are always trying to think about, you know, what are the assumptions that go into that model? Is the model working right? Do we, uh, one of the things that we've been toying with in the last year or so, we had a fellow come on board, uh, Don Bosch is a coastal ecologist, a renowned guy, and he was looking at the model and he felt like the model is correct over the long term, but there might be some more time on the early side, meaning that in the next 12 years or next 14 years, we may have more time. Rising seas will not happen as fast. They catch up over the long run, but we have more time to do good projects now and build land that could then keep up with sea level rise because wetlands with, you know, if you're actively in an active delta and you have the river feeding the wetlands on a regular basis, there's the potential that with vegetative growth, the wetlands can keep up with some some manner of sea level rise. So that's been one of the big topics that we've dug into in that in that work over the past couple of years. Well, that must be a challenge for foundations because I think of land managers, you know, in Florida. I'm from Florida originally, and sometimes the conservation you work is just buying yourself time with the expectation knowing you're going to lose that land anyway. And maybe as a foundation, as you're funding grantees, you almost acknowledge like, well, we're doing restoration work. We're doing we're helping you know restore these wetlands, but we know. In 50 years, 75 years, they could be gone. Right. And how do you factor that into like, because your organizations have to sort of tell you, well, we're going to restore a thousand acres. Well, <laughs> not long term. I mean, is there sort of a, an unspoken acknowledgement that that's the case? So in coastal Louisiana, the work that we I mean, obviously, that's an issue everywhere. Right. Right. But the work that we have been doing, we've tried to really like look at the longer term here. And we did a couple, maybe six or seven years ago, we finished this thing called the big, it was a design competition where we brought in all of these, you know, world renowned, huge engineering firms to look at all the data and to sort of see like what could be the potential future for the Delta. And all of the teams, we ended up with a couple of teams at the end and, you know, brought forward different, similar, but like different views of how to move ahead. 
And they all acknowledge that like durable solution down there is a smaller delta than what we have today, but that that delta is, you know, more consolidated, stronger, and just that there is a pathway where we, you know, we're still that where that delta can survive long term. So we try to orient towards uh, those kinds of efforts. Like we can't save everything, but we know that we can save enough to be able to protect the region, to maintain the shipping economy and to have the, you know, enormous fish and wildlife resource that is the coastal wetlands of Louisiana. But I think you're right. You can't get it all right. You can't save everything. No, no. And I think that's just as you strategically plan out, like how you invest, it's even buying time is your donation. It's your funding, right? Mm -hmm. It's your investment. So that that's kind of a a shift in thinking of how you spend your conservation dollars. Well, I was going to say in Florida, and I don't know if you follow the Everglades restoration much at all, but you know, my entire life and for the longest time, it's like, well, we've got to restore the Everglades. And you think there's just a subtle pivot that all this money, all these billions to divert water and to restore the Everglades it is really just to buy time to sea level rise and allowing the inland migration of mangrove forest. And I don't think you're mm-hmm. finding too many political leaders saying that, but in some ways that's what that massive project is ultimately going to be about. It's just putting off the inevitable. I mean, I'm glad you're doing this podcast, right? We have a lot to learn about what this adaptation thing is going to look like over time. I, I don't think we all know what all of the answers are long term, but we do hope that we can create a pathway, right, to better living with these issues. And Louisiana, I feel like more than Florida in some ways, you know, they're, they're really lucky. They have the Mississippi River, which is a right, huge right. resource for climate adaptation. And lots of coastal communities don't have that kind of a resource. And that's why we've been focused there, both because, you know, it's at the bottom of this river we identified that we really care about, right? But it, it is a real opportunity to show how we can better manage a river to to keep up with climate change, to grow wetlands, to, to model how people can live in deltas, which we know people do around the world, right? Well, I don't think enough people appreciate the Mississippi River is literally just this giant sediment fire hose. And you're right. (laughs) You have that luxury that other states don't have. And speaking of Louisiana, and and I'm wondering with the groups and the partners that you're working with, environmental justice issues, climate justice issues, are these coming up through your programs and your grants? Because when you think about just even the restoration work and wetlands and there's sometimes there's competition. And and, and is that becoming an issue for you guys or has it always been? I mean, I think that. Like the issues of equity and justice and in the environment space in Louisiana are numerous, right? And we think about it that there are hard, right? Because as we look at land loss, all kinds of communities are experiencing land loss. And a lot of those communities are not the ones that we hear about all the time. You know, like we think about uh, New Orleans as the people who live behind the levee, but there are native communities that have really experienced land loss. There are Cajun communities. There, are, There's all of these different ethnic communities involved in the fishing industry down there. We try to really pay very close attention to these issues and to think about how we build kind of like the biggest tent to get around these restoration issues. We've worked with uh, various ethnic communities involved in shrimping and involved in fishing. We've worked with folks in the Ninth Ward 
around climate resilience and and restoration there. And then we've worked down in the bayou communities where they're experiencing some of the fastest land loss. And those are some of the, I mean, people have already been identified as like you know, folks who are moving because of land loss. I think it's just deeply embedded in all that work. And, and I, I don't think that it's necessarily it's something that we as at the foundation really want to to do. And we understand it as a really important part of being successful in this work. And it's something that we know that we're like still beginners at and have a lot to learn about how to work really effectively with communities and how to think about inclusivity in our environmental solutions more broadly. Oh, I'm going to brutalize their name, but uh, are you guys involved? They've gotten a lot of coverage. The Ile de Charles Indian. Mm -hmm. The Homa Indians. Yep. Yeah. They're a state recognized tribe down there. Yeah. The Ile de Jean Charles. Thank yep. you. <laughs> yes. We have, they have been involved. We have focused the work more recently farther east, like really in the Mississippi Delta, but we have been, we've partnered with them and, and worked with them in the past. You know, I'm going to occasionally just throw out because here I am talking with a funder and like this lack of understanding. I've interviewed people that are dealing with indigenous people and having to migrate or having to translocate the entire community. And there's just not a lot of pathways for that, not a lot of guidance. And it's mm -hmm. th these really expensive endeavors and no one's really acknowledging, OK, do the math. 10 million people having to move away from the coast over the next 50 years. We need some really innovative ways to, to, to do this much more cheaply because I think they were the, for the, that particular tribe. It was like a hundred million dollars to move. It's really expensive. Uh, yeah. A hundred people. And that's not to say we should. I'm not jumping into that. I'm just saying that model is not sustainable and it's not useful going forward. So. Well, it's a wake up call about how early investments and thinking about migration away from the coasts, you know, starting now when you're building the next railway in, on the interior, think, thinking about zooming, thinking about these things on the front end when when the state of Louisiana is doing their capital budget for the year, right, or for the biennial or whatever it is, that those are the opportunities to try to get a little bit ahead of that curve, but that it's very difficult politically, right? Oh, it's just it's yeah, and sort of acknowledgement of encouraging it. You know, I had a conversation with someone who just focuses on managed retreat and just the complexities that kick into that, and that's just ignoring the fact that most political leaders don't want to touch that with a ten foot pole, let alone just actually do it. So it's not easy. Yeah, no, that's a big thing. We partnered with the, the state in Louisiana, got some the money. Anyway, there was money that was returned after Sandy that went out for adaptation projects. And so we have tried to look at how that's like, you know, if we're focused, you know, as a foundation, you have to you could do it, take on there's a million side issues, right, to the trying to restore the Mississippi Delta and trying to change the way we manage the river to restart Delta building down there. Right. But we did try to at least help support that effort because we see it as really connected. But it's just like these issues get so big, just like you're saying. Now, does Walton, and I've dug around a bit, but do you actually fund research itself? Do you work with uh, professors and the universities and such? Is that an area that you work on? We certainly do fund some research. It's not, I wouldn't say, like some foundations have big research programs. I would say most of our funding goes to folks on the ground who are trying to make change. But sometimes we fund researchers to either work alongside or try out new innovative solutions or, you know, that kind of thing. 
so it certainly comes up. I want to talk about adaptation in general because I you just I have an environment director here. But you know, first I want to touch a little bit on your ocean program, and I know it's about overfishing and sustainable fisheries. And just quickly, has climate change become an emerging issue in that focus area for you, or is it? Are you really more targeted at the? I mean, of course it is, but I mean, could you just give a little bit more background on that? Yeah, I mean, we have really dug into this idea of how do we promote early adaptation? You know, with climate change, we know fish species are going to move around. And we know that that is complicated because geographic boundaries don't, right? So there are, we need new tools and approaches to help adapt better to climate change in the fishery space. And we know that if we can get out in front of it, we have more potential to maintain the gains of sustainable harvest over time. So we know that that's a very important priority to stay on top of. But again, it's a big problem. It's very much emerging as a big topic in fisheries. WFO has started to you know, really raise it as an important issue. And it's definitely something that we're thinking about more and more. And we're thinking about it in the regional context. Like, how do you get, how do you address this bound, these boundary issues and these in, in fisheries? So you have alluded to these off and on. And, but I really want to drill into this because I'm all about adaptation. So there are very specific themes and goals at Walton, but how has adaptation, climate adaptation really played a part of that? And I mean, I, what I'm getting at too is like, you know, you could say here's a particular project where resilience is built in, but like as a general theme, is, is it something that you're addressing specifically? I would say that, and I hope you don't think this is a dodge. We have a water program. And so we have goals around, you know, water quality, water quantity, fish, you know, that kind of thing. But, our whole goal here is to create solutions that last, that are durable, right? So you obviously can't do that without thinking through the climate lens about like what we were talking about before about, you know, what land is going to be here in 50 years and what land is not. We have not, and we have purposely chosen not to measure ourselves by climate outcomes, but that doesn't mean that we're not weighing the impact of climate change and thinking about adaptation as we're advancing. And I, I will say that, you know, it has it comes up in the context of strategic planning and the foundation, you know, the role of climate and, you know, should should we be a climate change foundation? And one of the reasons that we haven't is that there's not there's not that many foundations that really drill in on water. And there's a lot more money for climate, frankly. And so focusing on water and looking at the adaptation and even mitigation aspects of that, I think is actually a really important play, you know, for the future. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I know the foundation space a little bit, and I have some colleagues that work in there. And I think maybe during the previous administration, there was a pulse of interest from foundations to focus on adaptation. But it's my understanding a lot have stepped back. You know, you look at some of the big ones, you know, Kresge still does some stuff and Rockefeller. And but actually, I think a lot of groups who work in the climate adaptation space are like the foundations aren't funding that much at all. And I'm just I'm just curious because you, you interact with other foundations, do you feel like that's something they bring up and say, you know what, we really are all in with this? Is that what you're hearing? 
So, you know, the way it works in, in this space is that we talk about how we can work together, like take Kresge, right? We have worked together in coastal Louisiana for a long time. They're not working there right now. But like we try to be strategic about how we can fit our work together. And so this was years ago, but it just gives you an example. The Kresge program officer and I put together like a three day tour with a bunch of our grantees and we did cross program learning. And so, you know, we had all the folks talking about, you know, how do you manage the river? And they had all their folks talking about like, you know, what does land use planning need to look like to complement this kind of strategy? Our engagement, my engagement with other foundations tends to be like that. Like, how, how can we leverage, how can we work together to leverage one another to maximize impact in the given area we want to work? I think you're right. I think adaptation is, if I were to step back and look at philanthropy broadly, I think it is, there is less focus on specifically on adaptation. And I think people have, have mentioned that before, but there is a lot of money going to climate writ large. Right. And so when we think about, you know, what is the relative niche that Walton can fulfill and how does that marry up with like the family's historic interests? We still think that the water space is like the place for us. And I agree. And I I feel like it's they're absolute polar opposites. But in the climate space with mitigation and you know what I mean by carbon emissions and, and that side of things. A lot of attention, I think a lot of money, a lot of fundraising that happens there. Mm-hmm. And just people in the adaptation space, we we. We just don't feel like there's that much overlap. We want them to do their jobs and get the carbon mm-hmm. emissions under control because we're not going to be able to adapt if you don't. But it's just when it comes to actually doing on the ground work, it's just a different creature. And so if I looked at, I mean, as, as I was looking at your strategic plan and, you know, ocean conservation, I would see all those just adaptation was the overall theme. And those things were just un- underneath it because you, you cannot, mm-hmm. I guess, ultimately have the outcomes you want if you're not, in fact, look at these massive changes that climate change is going to drive in these areas. I know there's a lot of ways to look at this. And I, I hear you in that we need to be thinking for the future, right? I think that we also have to it's really important to tap into like what drives people's passion, right? And I think it's also really important to look at like what do we need for the 21st century, right? And you know, when I think about the work that we do in fisheries or in the upper Mississippi or whatever, like we're trying we're working on the space of like trying to ch- to change agriculture so that we have the clean water and the food we need for the 21st century. So, you know, I mean, I think in a way, a lot of this work fits into the adaptation frame, but it's not as specific. It just, we do it in a, we do it in a little different way than might be, you know, immediately uh, accessible. <laughs> and I'm here to push back on you, aren't I? And, and part of what, what and I that's think. That's fine. It, and, and what, why I'm pushing back is I think the value of just sort of even acknowledging in the rhetoric of adaptation is because you, you you know how it is when you give grants, communication is a component that's written into a lot of those. How are you going to you going to write a report? Or are you going to do communication? Totally. And just acknowledging that and just getting people comfortable with this notion of I find it interesting. You know, I worked with World Wildlife Fund and they're all conservationists. Right. And the adaptation mm-hmm. person there. He has a struggle to get their conservationists in the field to think about adaptation, which I just find remarkable. We actually did a podcast where they kind of aired their dirty laundry around it, which was just a fascinating episode. And they, the people working on the field doing conservation, they don't necessarily see the adaptation overlapping with what they're doing. And me and this guy are just like, 
that's all you're doing. You you are now an adaptation mm-hmm. person. If mm-hmm. and I I get people just maybe are more comfortable with maybe the rhetoric of the existing status quo, but I just think there's an opportunity there, and I'm rambling here to you, but it's just the the opportunity to communicate <laughs> climate hear, yeah. change I adaptation. Hear, yeah. I think. All these grantees and all their programs, we just, it, it's to be a, a constant. Like if you're doing ocean sustainability, you know, it's think about ocean acidification. That's going to be such a major driver of fisheries in the years ahead. So just huge opportunities to communicate to the public. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear you, but I also think that if more people talked about it more, we'd have like, they're all doing this work already. We just, we are not embracing what we have to do to face this change ahead of us. Right. And I, but I also like, I spent a lot of my time working with farmers and for them, those are like really polarizing issues. You know, we can talk about the weather, but we can't talk about climate. Right. And so I think we can make a lot of progress in certain communities not by, you know, not by refusing to talk about it or not acknowledging it, but by meeting them on their own terms. So, so anyway, I think you can go both ways and both have a role. <laughs> no, you, you've got to, I, I get it. And there, there's, there are parameters of how you're engaging with the public. And I get that too. And I, I've had this conversation before of just people that are implementing adaptation actions on the ground. Some of them purposely avoid even mentioning climate change because they're like, why do I need to talk about that when we're just talking about flood control and such? And I can sit here from my podcast and say, Hey, you should do it anyway. And I don't know. Maybe it's just, it to me, it's almost an issue of authenticity of what you're trying to say to them if you're sort of holding back why you think the overall reason things are changing so radically you're just like well i'm I'm not going to mention that and it's just like you know what people kind of want you to be honest with them even though it might be a little bit controversial but that's me sitting behind my microphone so i get it (laughs) i i I think we can let all flowers bloom here i'm still going to be pushing you foundations to work on adaptation but that's okay here we are having that conversation that's fine it's all good not so much adaptation, but I'm just more curious in, in the foundation space. I went to the National Adaptation Forum. This was probably one about four years ago. And some a representative from the Wilberforce Foundation, I don't know if you ever worked with the, that group. Mm-hmm. They really, yeah. I think they emphasize mainly just the Pacific Northwest, but they do other few other things. Yep. They led a workshop, which I thought was really cool, on about foundations. And, and may, well, it's more about funding and how foundations, and they were one, are just notoriously sort of conservative in how they're investing their money. And the point of what she was trying to do is like, what are some ways we can create some innovation when it comes to that space of investing in conservation outcomes? So it wasn't necessarily a critique on foundations, but it was sort of like the existing model of conservation funding. It doesn't take enough chances, sort of like the San Francisco startup culture where, you know, you have huge Mm -hmm. failure rates. It's like, well, Fulton, you're going to spend $100 million and 90 million of your projects are really just going to fail spectacularly. But you were taking a chance. You were trying to see if you're going to make a big leap in an outcome. Is that come up with you guys? Do you have those sort of conversations on how you're investing? We do. Yes. I mean, so it's a balance, right? I talked to you about strategic philanthropy and like, here's our theory of change and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to drive that strategy and we're going to go find partners and all that. But at the same time, like you want to be open to the opportunities for the big leap. And so, you know, we're back in strategic planning now and we've been talking to the to the board and, you know, we really heard from them that that they value risk taking and that they see philanthropic capital as a place to take take big risks and make big bets. And so we're thinking about that in our strategy. We're trying to figure out how do you create incentives for that in the 
structure in our structure. We've been experimenting with what we call a, it's not a huge pot of money, but it's an innovation fund. It's for things that aren't in strategy, but could advance your strategy. And it's not tons of money, but it's enough to kind of test things and get things going and, uh, you know, give these things a try. So we are thinking about that. We're thinking about how to unleash some more innovation in our space and to encourage risk taking, you know, even as we still try to promulgate a strategy, right? We still try to like test the assumptions that we made to begin with. I think that's a smart thing to be thinking about. And I think it's a smart thing to be asking about because I think you're right. I think a lot of foundations, us included, are very, uh, you know, it's just, it's easy to get committed to the same grantees and the same approaches over time. Right. Well, and I think part of the problem, too, and, and this is a natural reaction, but I think it's just you're always thinking accountability. It's like, well, we're going to give you a million dollar grant and we're going to give you general guidelines of what we want. But if they just really blow it, it's like, well, we wasted your money. And I always wonder how these startups get money in the first place, because part of that's right. the approach, right? They just burn through money. But I guess the payoff is so big that these capital venture capitalists, they, it's worth the risk, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Like we have a big due diligence process, right? And and that is smart philanthropy. You know, you don't want to just give out money to everyone who asks. But at the same time, how do you deploy that due diligence process to not squelch anything that isn't traditional? So like that's the that's to me the key. Like what are the like I am good at my job is to like figure out whether or not non Profits, mostly nonprofits, can deliver what they're promising, right? My, I have not been trained in like analyzing the relative merits of different technological approaches to a, to solving a problem, right? It's a different skill set, and so as program officers, we're like stretching ourselves to get our minds around that and to to encourage that kind of bold thinking and risk taking. I encourage it if you can. And I, I guess on that note, we talked a little bit about capacity building. And so that's an area that Walton does, right? I mean, you're working with organizations. And I find I've worked with various organizations, different sizes and such, a lot of idealistic people, myself included. But at the same time, I think there was a lack of ability within, you know, top to bottom in some of these organizations. And so as you're investing in these groups, you're like, well, this is a 10 person shop and you know, they just don't have the capacity in this particular area. Is, is that what you were talking to earlier that somehow you're just kind of looking at them and saying, you know what, we're going to invest so you can be more rounded. Is that what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, when we started doing grant making, significant grant making starting in 2009 in the freshwater space in particular at Walton, you know, I went out and I, I was working in the Mississippi River at the time and I was like shaking the trees for anyone who, you know, fell within my parameters, right? And as that grant making has evolved, you know, some grantees, their approaches didn't pan out and they have been exited, you know, hopefully respectfully. And then other grantees had really great ideas and a lot of them were little. When we first started this work, because, you know, I, I told you that we really believe that, uh, you know, community based solutions, the, those who are closest to the problem can have the best ideas on how to solve it. And so, 
you know, we didn't want to just give our money to big DC or New York based NGOs. We wanted to be partnering. We want, we're going to do some of that. Of course, we're not, not doing that, but we wanted to be partnering with folks who really like live in these communities and know what the folks who are, what farmers are facing. Right. And so some of the groups were, didn't, weren't successful and those they're not in the portfolio anymore. And some of them, we were like, wow, what you do is really great. Let's double it. Let's triple it. Let's develop a plan to build this out over time. And so we, we have, you know, very mindfully helped some organizations add staff, add uh, technical capacity, get at fundraising capacity, get smarter about how to grow membership, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, when they were successful and when we felt like they were doing something that was really important and um, oftentimes a little different, you know, they had a new way, they had a better way, they had a more community-based way, whatever it was. Yeah, it's interesting. And I guess my point where I sort of, when you become a larger group, a larger nonprofit, there, there is the risk of becoming a bureaucracy too. You know, you, mm-hmm. you repeat some of the same problems of a government bureaucracy and you're not, it's not as nimble, even though you're a private organization. So that has its own trouble on top of being a small understaffed organization. So I'm sure you see that too. Totally. You know, I think a lot of the big NGOs are, are really effective, but I think that, you know, that's, constant tension right how do you how do you stay nimble how do you stay smart and not get not become bloated and spend all kinds of money on overhead and stuff like that it's a huge issue and when you're working with a grantee the theory of change you've talked about it and you're doing it yourself but is that just something that sort of the expectation that they'll go through when you're working with them that they will be able to articulate like how they're approaching the problem and what their yeah even if it's a written theory of sometimes you have to go through that whole process where you're just it's even a written here's our theory of change and this is how we're going to implement the project and such is is that sort of a normal template we try not to be like too super overbloated with our terminology but we do so we don't require every grantee have a theory of change and it doesn't all have to have boxes and arrows but but we do you know sit down and roll up our sleeves and talk about like does this really make sense can it really happen we try to be user friendly right so i don't i don't make my grantees draw boxes and arrows and like have all that stuff going on but we do try to really like have a comprehensive view of how they're trying to solve the problem that fits into what we're trying to do right and we do try to test them not test them but like you know work with them to be like so you know Tell me why you think that that farmers, if we if we present this information, there'll be this change. And, you know, we spend we spend a lot of time on that because, you know, these problems, we've been after them for a long time. You know, people have been focused on the nutrient problem in the Mississippi River since the 1993 flood. And we haven't come close to solving it. Right. right. So we have to really challenge ourselves to work in a way where we're constantly learning along the way. So that's why we use these ideas like a theory of change or whatever to test, to like make hypotheses and test them and and to try to, you know, get better at it as we go forward. Oh, I'm having flashbacks in my previous nonprofit job. I was a policy director and I wasn't expected to raise money, but then that shifted instantly. (laughs) You should always be expected to raise money. And then the Mm -hmm. foundation we were working with is like, what's your theory of change for this program? And I was such a moron. I'm just like, what? (laughs) I did 
didn't get it. The reverse engineering about the process and outcomes. And I, oh, I'm, I'm getting the chills just thinking about like, oh, give us your theory. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I really didn't mean to like cause you to have. No, um, I asked the PTSD, question. PTSD, foundation PTSD. <laughs> I asked you the question. No, it's okay. I just, you've, you've got to get inside people's heads before you're going to invest them. I get it. I get it. It's just sometimes it's like people's brains don't work that way. So I know, I know. And, but I think that's my job too, right? To like make it accessible. Because if I see that they're doing something that's really important, I shouldn't, I don't want my presses to be in the way. Right. As we kind of wrap this up, and you'd mentioned that Walton's going through the strategic planning process. And if you could sort of, I think a lot of people would be curious, you know, when do you expect to be done with that? And I brought this up earlier and I'm not going to let it go in the notion of like integrating climate change and adaptation. We plan on five-year cycles. It's pretty common. So we are ending this strategic plan at the end of the year, the end of 2020, and we'll be rolling into the new one at the beginning of uh, next year. We're still in the first phase of it. You know, we've been looking, examining like what was good, what was not, uh, what have we succeeded at? You know, how should we be thinking about what do we talk about? What do we want to keep? What do we want to stop? And what do we want to evolve for the new work? We're about to dive into sort of some day one hypotheses about how what the program should look like. And we're going to get a, do a bunch of external review and get a lot of pressure testing from folks in our field. And then um, we'll be working on strategies and budget and we'll hopefully get everything approved by November and be ready to go for um, January 2021. As we wrap this up, I, I and I, I just it's probably where people are out there wanting to learn more about Walt Foundation. I, we should just acknowledge, though, it's like it, when it comes to the grant making process, it's by invitation only. But I, what I, I would like you to do is maybe there's probably a lot of groups in these focus areas that could still benefit by, I guess, going to your website and looking at the partners that you actually do fund, that maybe there's a place for them there. I mean, is there any way you could, I guess, explain how people could take advantage of the work that you guys have already funded? Yeah, we Welcome, fellow travelers. You can you can take a look at things we've already done. You can, if you think you're a fit, uh, you can always call us up or write us a letter. But we are worried that we have not done enough to share what we're learning constantly. And so we are really trying to up our game in terms of that. We're trying to do more blogs, sharing more white papers, just like better communicating to the outside world about what's going on. So I think our website is doing a better job with that. But there's something that you know, oh, they made that grant and I never knew what happened. You should feel free to reach out and we will do our very best to help to, you know, connect. We, you know, we, we want to be in partnership and pulling in the same direction as many people as possible. So we invite the engagement. We just touched upon your ocean conservation work, but as you guys do some outreach, Speak Up for Blue is another podcast that focuses solely on ocean conservation. So I, I encourage you to reach out to them. They really have a nice mix of folks. And so if you are looking at different platforms, that they do a spectacular job. Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate the referral. The host there, he's a really nice guy. Okay, so I have two last questions for you, and maybe you know what, what's coming here. And so – who has been a major inspiration to you in the environmental space? Oh, wow. I have not thought about that. I have several. Some of this is sort of cliched, but, you know, I have as a as a woman and as someone who identified as a scientist, I've always been incredibly uh, inspired by what Rachel Carson did, not just because of like the 
that she, you know, wrote that book or whatever, but like she was such a, she was such a brave communicator and her story about, you know, really coming, how she came to what she was doing. I just have always been really inspired by. I went to college and I read New Roots for Agriculture by Wes Jackson. And that really, I, I had never thought about all those issues. And that book just really inspired me to think about how agriculture could be part of an environmental solution. And so Wes Jackson, Wendell Berry, that whole kind of school, Fred Kirschman, that whole kind of school of people who really see agriculture as a community activity that can move us forward in relation to the environment. I've always been very inspired by it as well. Cool. And last question, if you could recommend a guest to come on this podcast, who would it be? Oh, now that's fun. So I have some grantees in the middle of the country who work with farmers and who are just like really both wise and plain spoken about like what's happening in the middle of the country and how they are seeing changes in the climate or changes in the weather and farmers are working to adapt to them and you know I I have some I have some folks like that who I think you guys you would really enjoy talking to so I'll send you a list. Okay, good. There we go. We don't have a name, but you're going to follow up and give me a list. That, that sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, Maura, this has been awesome. I love talking shop, especially I don't get to talk to foundations so much. And so I hope this was an enjoyable experience for you. It's just you guys are doing some amazing things. And there's people out here. We have such expectations of you guys, and they're probably not realistic expectations, but there's so much positive that can happen through foundations. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing the great work that you're doing at Walton. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Dr. Maura McDonald for coming on the podcast. I don't have many foundation people on the pod, and they offer a unique role in the adaptation universe. I hope you learned something about how they operate and what Walton is doing in the conservation space. Thanks again, Maura, for coming on. Definitely go check out their work in my show notes. Hey, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work, think about using a podcast. I've worked with many partners before, World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, MIT, UCLA, the trustees of Massachusetts, maybe you want to tell your story via a podcast. Reach out. Let's partner. Also, I do presentations to classes and keynote presentations at conferences. I know we're all taking a break from those at the moment, but feel free to contact me if you're interested in having me speak at your event. And also don't forget to check out the Simpatico Studios link in my show notes. If you don't think you'd be a good fit for an interview, just come in and watch a show or two and participate in the community. This is something radically new, and I think you're going to enjoy it. All right, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private and just search for America Adapts and ask to join and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. Also, thanks for all the plugs on social media for the retweets and people who listen to the episodes and say nice things on the podcast. On a recurring basis, I will be highlighting these people that do it. So again, podcast flourish based on word of mouth. So uh, deeply appreciate it. And retweet at me on Facebook and on Twitter. So I I know you've done it, then I can retweet it. So thank you again for all those people that have done that. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it, just say hi. Every week, it's someone new, organizations, individuals. It's always something very interesting. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Seriously, it's a highlight of my week hearing from you. And sometimes it leads to really cool things. I'm at americaadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Don't forget to check out the website, americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.